Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 4.3, I don't understand. Well, hello again. If you've been listening to these podcasts and wondering who is this bloke, let me just introduce myself briefly because I'm going to share a little bit more on a personal note in this one. And it's probably uh, fair that you know a little bit about who I am. My name is Paul. Paul Jones, and I'm one of the lecturers at Trinity College Queensland in Brisbane. My lectures are my areas of lecturing are Old Testament and preaching. So, in the next two podcasts, we're still under the heading of crisis. We're going to turn our attention to a different kind of crisis. So, in the first two, we were looking at uh, Josiah and Jehoiakim, his son, and how those two guys in times of crisis made very different decisions. Uh, one for the better and one for the worse. The kind of crisis that we want to look at with Job is a crisis of faith. And we'll continue to ask how a person relates to God in the midst of crisis. And what I mean by crisis of faith is those times in our life when our understanding of God clashes with our life experience. Right? Our life experience isn't something that we can... Uh, argue with or renegotiate, things happen. Our life experience is solid. But our understanding of God is a little bit less so. And so when our understanding of God clashes with our life experience, something has to be uh, negotiated or done. When life's events don't match up with our beliefs, some form of explanations in order. So either what we tend to go to is either our uh, beliefs are wrongheaded or our experiences are not quite what they seemed. So we need to reinterpret or understand those. In in my book, Job's Way Through Pain, I give the example of someone who firmly believes that ghosts are not real. Now, this is just an illustration, okay? I'm not veering off into a discussion of the supernatural, but let's say that's you. Let's say you don't believe in ghosts, but you wake up one night and you find one standing at the foot of your bed, just standing there, staring at you. Now, I hope you're not listening to this podcast right before you go to sleep, by the way. Sorry about that if you are. But if you have that experience, you're either going to need to modify your beliefs about ghosts or find a way to explain what's going on. Now, some of the possibilities for explanation would be, is someone playing a trick on me? Is someone dressed up and they've crept into the room? Or maybe the explanation would be, am I even fully awake? Is this a dream? Or did I recognize this ghost as someone who has recently passed away and is my mind sort of playing tricks on me? Or have I been watching too many TV shows about zombies? Now, there are lots of other possibilities here too. Lots of other questions you could ask yourself as a way of trying to understand what has happened. The alternative, of course, is to modify your beliefs about whether ghosts exist or not. Now, this isn't a matter of being curious or intelligent. It's just a matter of being human. All of us want, actually all of us need, the stuff of life to be coherent. We need it to gel together. And our experiences need to make sense of life. If our beliefs don't match up with the life that we're living, then we're justified in either A, asking whether we really believe the things we think we believe, or B, asking whether our belief system needs some fine-tuning. So let me give you another example that's a bit more related to our subject here. How many people have you met who say this sort of thing? I just can't believe in a God who, 
dot, dot, dot. And you can finish that sentence yourself. So it could be, I just can't believe in a God who would allow the Holocaust to happen. I just can't believe in a God who would allow natural disasters to happen. And sometimes it's quite general like that. I can't believe in a God who allows so much suffering in the world. Or sometimes it's much more specific and personal. I just can't believe in a God who would allow my baby niece to die for no apparent reason. Or I can't believe in a God who allows the church to be such a mess and to mess up other people's lives. Now, this isn't going to sound very compassionate, perhaps, but I think on one level, when people speak like that, they're basically saying, I can only believe in a God who I can fully understand, right? Or to be even more provocative, I will only believe in, in a God on my terms. In other words, if God will comply with the kind of character or the kind of behaviours that I think God should have, then sure, I'll consider believing. Isaiah 29 says that when we, when we talk like that, when we think like that, it's like the clay saying to the potter, you don't know what you're doing or you've got no understanding. And Isaiah says when we talk like that, that we've got it upside down. That's in Isaiah 29, 16. And he refers to the same image of clay and a potter in chapter 45. And in chapter 55, he says, God's ways are above. They're beyond our ways. His thoughts are above and beyond our thoughts. And we shouldn't assume that we can understand everything about God. And that's part of my own understanding of God. Speaking personally, my understanding of God is that I won't ever fully understand God. And I don't say that as a cop-out. You know, God, God's too hard for me to grasp, but I've decided to believe and that's all there is to it. Just don't ask any questions. <laughs> Not at all. I do think that God is beyond human understanding, but the whole reason I've spent most of my life studying the Bible and teaching it is because I firmly believe that God has made himself known to us through the Bible and through Jesus. And Jesus comes to us clothed in the literature of the Bible. So for me, when, when things have happened in my life that have been blatantly unfair, I haven't assumed that God is the kind of God who must step in and fix things. Why don't I believe that? Because I don't think that's what the Bible re reveals about God, and I don't think it's what Jesus revealed about God either. So in the literature of the Bible and in the person of Jesus, I think we learn a radically different lesson, and it's not that if you don't understand God, he's not worthy of your trust. In the Bible, bad things happen to all kinds of people, good and bad. And the very worst kinds of things happened to Jesus, the Son of God. So there's this remarkable passage in, in Matthew 26, where Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows that what's coming is going to be extremely painful, physically and emotionally. But he says to his disciples, who, by the way, are ready to fight for him, they've got their swords out, he says, put your swords away. Don't you realize that I could appeal to my father and he would immediately send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, all up, we're talking roughly 60,000 angels, give or take. That's a lot of firepower, right? But seriously, if you think about it, when we're suffering or when someone says, oh, I can't believe in a God who doesn't do something about my suffering, Presumably, this is exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. 60,000 angels at our beck and call to sort out the mess and maintain justice. We would love that. But that's why I mentioned this story, this narrative in Matthew. Jesus tells his disciples that 
he could call for that kind of help. So why doesn't he? Well, listen to the very next verse, verse 54. Jesus says, But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen in this way? Now, the reason that that phrase strikes me, that Jesus says it must happen in this way, is because after Jesus has been crucified and buried and his female disciples go to the tomb early Sunday morning, they find two angels there, not not 60,000, just two. And do you know what those two angels say to them? They say, don't you remember that Jesus told you that it must happen this way, that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified and on the third day rise again? That's Luke, Luke 24, verse 7. And then later in that chapter, when two of the disciples um, are on their way to Emmaus, the same day, they're grieving Jesus' death. They're saying, we thought this guy was the one. We thought this was it. We don't understand. And as Jesus rocks up and starts walking with them, do you know what he says? He says, don't you get it? Why are you so slow to pick up on this? It had to be this way. It was necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then be lifted up. That is recognized for who he truly is. So in those three passages, those three verses, they all contain this little Greek word, dei, which means it was necessary. It had to happen this way. And do you see what I'm getting at? When life has treated me unfairly, I don't believe or don't expect that God has to send his angels and make everything right. Why not? Because the one that I follow didn't expect that either. And I trust him. So if Jesus said repeatedly that it had to be this way, in other words, that pain and suffering have a place in our journey, If Jesus said that we should put down our swords, that we should stop calling on angels, that we should listen again to what the Old Testament says about him, then that's what I will do because I trust him. But I should be clear about this. It's taken me some time to get to this place and I certainly didn't sort of wake up to this as a a child one day. So let me tell you a little bit more about myself and how I've come to this point. I grew up in Nigeria and Benin, two countries in Africa. My parents were both missionaries, so I I grew up in a very different context to the one that I now live in, in Brisbane, in Australia. And when I was a teenager and my family had moved to Melbourne, my mum, who had faithfully served God as a missionary in Africa for 12 years, got an aggressive case of rheumatoid arthritis. And for the next 24 years of my life, I watched her body deteriorate. So my mum suffered physical pain, of course, but not just physical pain. She suffered the deeper losses of freedom and self-worth as well. And by the end of her life, you know, she had steel joints in both knees, both hips, one shoulder, uh, not to mention she had plastic knuckles uh, in both hands and the permanent removal of all the metacarpals, the knuckles in her toes. She used to joke about her body being discovered in the future and mistaken for a bionic woman. How ironic, she would say. And I don't know how to this day, but she kept her sense of humour right to the end. But as that time passed, and it was a formative time for me, my teenage years and my early 20s, I remember going to prayer meetings in churches where people would pray for my mum's healing. And every time she remained so hopeful about each meeting, and she was so confused afterwards as her tortured body continued to take turns for the worse. And I simply couldn't understand it. You know, I'd heard healing stories at church and I'd, 
I've personally known people with amazing stories to tell of God's miraculous intervention in their lives. So why not my mum? Why not my mum? She devoted so much of her life to serving God as a missionary in the life of the church. And as long as she could walk, she walked to the local primary school to teach RE. It just didn't seem fair. And the feeling that overwhelmed me was that surely she deserved better. Now, part of my difficulty um, in dealing with that and thinking through it at the time was I had no framework for understanding my mum's situation because as far as I knew, the Bible says that you get what you deserve, doesn't it? So for instance, I'd read this in Psalm 37, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Seems pretty clear cut. Or this from uh, Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 14. The perverse get what their ways deserve, and the good what their deeds deserve. Do you see what I mean? The Bible seems pretty clear on this. So I was unable to make sense of my mum's situation. Until, that is, I turned to the book of Job. Now, I don't mean to draw any direct lines between Job and myself and say that I've been through, you know, what he's been through. But I have found Job to be a very helpful role model as I've sought to work through these issues. Because, you see, Job begins with a similar understanding of the world to the one I started with and probably to the one you've started with. That is a simple one that we get what we deserve in life. All kids think that. Kids think they get what they deserve and that's why they're always yelling about, this isn't fair and that's not fair. She's got a bigger one than me. I wanted more cake and she got two and a half pieces and I just got two and so on. This inbuilt understanding of what's fair and what's not fair, we start life like that. Everything should be fair. And as we grow up, we recognize slowly that not everything is fair. And the book of Job is a book about change. Job doesn't remain static throughout. It's a book about how a crisis of faith can lead to positive change. As one Jewish scholar, uh, Moshe Greenberg, puts it, the book of Job is about the transformation of a man. So let me just read you quickly the first five verses of this book, just to get you, give you a sense of what kind of dude we're dealing with here. And I'm going to read you from my own translation. These five verses introduce the character of Job. Once there was a man in the land of Uz, and his name was Job. This was a true man of integrity. He turned towards God and away from badness. And he brought into the world seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 donkeys, and also a huge number of servants. In fact, he was the most renowned person in the East. Now, his sons used to hold parties, each in his house in turn, and they would send invitations to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting reached their completion, Job would dedicate them to God. So listen to this carefully. He would get himself up early in the morning and offer up burnt, burnt offerings according to their number, that is one for each child. For Job thought, perhaps, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular habit. All right, so what we have here is a guy who gen is genuinely righteous, and I mean righteous by the definition that we've been looking at in this series, covenantal faithfulness. His allegiance is to God. He always turns toward God, and he always turns away from evil. 
or badness. So what I especially want you to, to notice here, though, is the way that Job deals with sin. And actually, it's not even sin, is it? It's the way he deals with the possibility that his kids have done something wrong. So the insight we're given here at the very start of the book of Job is that Job's actions seem a lot like transactions, which, of course, tells us a bit about how he perceives God. When Job's kids have their parties and Job worries that they might do or say something wrong under the influence, so to speak, he offers a sacrifice on their behalf. And the text is really clear about saying this is Job's regular habitual behavior. It's not a once-off thing. And do you see what Job is doing? He thinks that he's staving off consequences for his kids' actions because he holds a fairly mechanical view of God. Sin and you will suffer. Make amends and you'll be okay, at least until the next wild party. So this is where we begin. This is the end of this podcast, but this is where we begin with Job and often with our own view of God. He's God, so he should make everything fair, right? But like Job, you don't have to be on planet Earth for very long before you'll discover that life is not fair and that God does not just step in to make everything right all the time. Now, admittedly, Job's story takes this to extreme because in Job we see a completely righteous man, blameless it says, and he's suffering in the worst kinds of ways. And we'll look at that in the next podcast. But as Job's world comes crashing down around him, I want to ask with him and with you, how do we relate to God in times like that? Where is God when life hurts? How should I talk about God and to God when I'm suffering? And what's the way forward? Is it possible? Is it possible that this painful, lonely experience could lead to something good, to some sort of transformation? Well, look, I'm aware we've covered a lot in this podcast, but maybe the best question just to ponder as we anticipate the next one is this. What is your answer to this question? Why do bad things happen to good people? How would you answer that question? Why do bad things happen to good people? See you soon. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.